Hi, this is Richard Watts, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the arts. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Uh, you're listening to Smart Arts on Triple R. Uh, I'm joined in the studio now uh, by with uh, Anna Seymour, uh, who is a, a dance artist that is um, who is presenting a new work called Mini Spin, a deaf-led participatory dance party for children. Um, the work is for um, for deaf children. It's for children of deaf adults, and uh, it's also for hearing children and their families. Um, it's going to be at North. Town Hall from the uh, on the fourteenth and fifteenth of March, um, and uh, it's. Um, it's a really incredible work. I saw the adult version of this work uh, called Spin, and that was it was uh, an electric experience. Um, and that it's been adapted for children is incredible. Um, I'm joined in the studio by Anna. Seymour. Anna is a is a deaf dance maker. Um, and so we're also joined in the studio uh, with interpreter Maxine. Uh, Maxine will be uh, interpreting for Anna. So the voice you'll be hearing is the interpreter, but I'm talking directly to Anna and you'll be hearing from Anna's um, Anna's words. Um, and then as part of the interpretation, there may be a bit of a delay as well as we do the interpretation itself. So if there's a few seconds of silence, um, unusual for radio, that's why. Uh, Anna Seymour, welcome. Well, welcome. Thank you. Uh, so what inspired you to make Mini Spin? Well, look, I've always wanted to work uh, with children and with uh, young audiences. Uh, the Melbourne Fringe uh, asked me if I would be uh, interested to be sponsored by them to adapt my main stage spin for children. Um, and so that's where we are. And... Uh can you tell us a little bit about um, why why this work? Why why have you made it for for children, and why is this work important? Yeah, sure. So, ninety to ninety five percent of deaf children are actually born into hearing uh, parent families. Uh, most of those families don't know anything about the deaf community or Auslan, um, Australian Sign Language, which is the language of the majority deaf community in Australia. And a lot of deaf and hard of hearing children are very isolated. Uh, they don't necessarily get a chance to relate to each other um, or to other hearing children who may have deaf parents um, who may also feel uh, a bit isolated or, or stuck between two worlds, I guess. Those kids who have parents that are deaf, they sort of live half in the deaf world and half in the hearing world. So I guess with Mini Spin, I'm providing a space for those two groups of children to get together and to celebrate their language and their culture. And, and I really want to give them the space to do that. And, you know, use sign language to encourage them to dance and interact um, and then lay claim to that space. Can I ask you a little bit about deaf culture? I think for a lot of people who aren't part of deaf culture um, and aren't part of the deaf world don't realise that actually there is a really vibrant, healthy, inclusive um, deaf, deaf culture. Can you talk to us a little bit about, um, can you give us a sort of the, the 101 on deaf culture? Wow. Okay. That's a, yeah, I think we do have a very rich culture. You've hit the nail right on the head there. There's a lot of history 
there, lots of stories. But I think in terms of the deaf community, we're a very inclusive group of people. I think we are well known for having very inclusive conversations. So if two people are talking and another person joins uh, the conversation later on, it is deaf culture to actually say, now, look, what we've been talking about is X, Y and Z, just to get you up to speed. And that's something that's really, really common, uh, just being inclusive like that. We love stories. We love um, you know, using our sign language. We love humour body language, facial expression, uh, you know, if you've ever seen a deaf person mid-storytelling, they're very, very uh, vibrant and expressive. Um, and I think, you know, we have lots of fun sharing stories about the silly things that people who are not deaf do. <laughs> <laughs> um, and like all communities do, there's always the people on the outside that seems that seems strange. Um, can you talk to us a exactly. little bit about Mini Spin and what happens inside the work? What can audiences expect when they walk into that space? Yeah, sure. So there will be an audience welcome in the foyer by a deaf person. Uh, who will teach a couple of signs before everyone goes into the actual performance. Once the audience is in the room, there'll be three deaf hosts and a DJ. And so we will have uh, a deaf interpreter as well. So it will be a fully immersive visual experience. We won't have any... uh, English or any uh, voiceover throughout the experience, but you'll be guided through this participatory uh, dance experience and party by these deaf hosts. There'll also be some theatre skits in there as well. And we'll end with just, yeah, a big party where everyone gets to move around the space and mingle and, and enjoy. And it'll be fabulous, of course. And can you talk a little bit about how the work is made accessible for uh, for deaf audiences and then also how it's made accessible for hearing audiences? Can you talk through some of the, the theatrical things that you've done to make that possible? Yeah, sure. So the deaf audience and the interpreters um, will make their sign language very visual. So even if you're not fluent in Auslan, you will feel welcome and included in the space. I think it's also worth mentioning that the audience will have the opportunity to learn a little bit of sign and be prepped before they go into the room. So that will sort of help them uh, get in the mood and also have some tools to be able to communicate whilst in the space. And it's based on, you know, the sort of gestures we're using are based on dance and and based on movement. And, and I think you don't need to be a language expert to understand those Um you know, anyone can do the kinds of movements uh, and the, the kinds of uh, activities that, that we're proposing from, from young kids right up to, you know, 80 or 90 year olds. There's no limit. Uh, and so speaking of movement, Anna, you're a, you're a trained dancer um, and dance yes. maker. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your experience of um, being a dancer and what's important to you when you're making work? Ooh, that's a that's a sticky one. <laughs> big question, big question, Dan. I guess for me, what's really important is to work amongst a great team of people that are really open to collaborating. That's super important. 
And you collaborate with Luke King and Robbie Burrows. How did that collaboration start and what's that process been like working with them? Well, I actually asked uh, Luke and Robbie to be involved in Spin, the adult show, in 2018 and then again for Mini Spin. I think both of them have fantastic personalities, lots of energy. Um, They're great with people, super visual communicators, very warm and uh, welcoming. Uh, You know, they're not trained dancers themselves, that's worth acknowledging, Um, but I'm really proud of how they've just given themselves to this show and, um, you know, we've had shows of 100 people and they've risen to the challenge. I love working with them um, because it's easy. We don't need to bring in interpreters. They're both deaf. We can all communicate in Auslan. Uh, It's just seamless. Uh, And on that, can I ask for you as a, you know, a collective of artists collaborating together um, as deaf artists, what are some of the barriers that you encounter as artists trying to make work and how have you overcome those barriers? Well, I guess the biggest barrier for me um, is probably more about community's attitude to deaf people um, and in general people with disabilities and our perceived capacity to to do this kind of work, to do sort of freelance work. There's obviously costs with communication, so like interpreters, um, and we obviously need interpreters to participate in creating work um, as, you know, as anyone needs to be able to access uh, things to be able to participate. That's something that is really basic for us. And uh, because that is a financial struggle, it can limit our ability to be able to participate and, and make art and grow as artists. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, having sat on the other side of the of being, the, being a producer, um, working with deaf artists, often trying to find the money for interpreters, can be really difficult because there's not much money out there for art to begin with. Um, and often within organisations, yeah, it's hard to find uh, the will from other people within the organisation to go, actually, access is really important. Paying for interpreters is really important. We need to, we need to prioritise that. Um, and it, yeah, that, uh, that kind of community attitudes, like you said, can be a real, can be a real big barrier to making work possible. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Anna, um, we've run out of time. I do just want to quickly hear from you um, a quick recap about the show. Can you tell us uh, what the show is called, where where it's at, when it's on, and uh, how people can find out more? Sure, my pleasure. So the show is Mini Spin. It's part of the Next Wave Festival, Saturday 14th and Sunday 15th of March. There'll be four shows. On Saturday, it's 2 and 4 p.m. And then on Sunday, it's 10 o'clock in the morning and then 2 in the afternoon. It's at the Northcote Town Hall. And you can find out more information and book tickets through the Darabin Arts website. Yeah. And it's uh, $22 for tickets. Or you can get a family pass, uh, which is $60, and that's for two children and two adults. So good to, you know, get the whole family together um, and come out for a dance and really let loose and have a good time. 
it is a whole fa- all a family experience, and um, yeah, that's mini spin at uh, Northgate Town Hall uh, on the 14th and 15th. Head to darabinarts.com.au to find out more. Uh, and a big thank you, Anna, for joining us in the studio and to um, interpreter Maxine thank as well. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, both of you. Triple R. Uh, you're listening to Smart Arts. Uh, my name is Daniel. I'm your host for today, uh, and uh, I'm here. Uh, we're here to talk about the long shot. Um, I have visual artist Jackie Stockdale in the studio with me to talk about a major new series of work um, that is a new history of the Kelly Gang. Um, and this work, this series of work, extends uh, Jackie's fascination with 19th century Australian narratives surrounding Ned Kelly. Uh, Jackie, welcome to the studio. Thank you. So, um, the long shot. Mm-hmm. Tell us about this exhibition. Where did it? What? Where did it come from? Okay, um, it's a a sequel to um, a past series called the Boho, um, and it really continues my um, fascination with um, an area of uh i suppose um part of my childhood <clears throat> northeast victoria um i grew up um around benella and um the other thing the that fascinates me is the masquerade which is the mask or the helmet of ned kelly um which is aligns to my um uh, interest in 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 masquerade. So I think that um, as an Australian icon, um, being the being Ned Kelly in the, in the helmet, I find that that's um, uh, such an uh, alluring part of of the story. But the long shot really is taking a long shot, taking a look at um, the history of the Kelly Gang in a way that I haven't seen um, many like in, in films and literature. Um, as part of my research, there's aspects of of the Kelly Gang that um, I feel like I can expand on. So uh, you're known for your um, your portraits of uh, of masked or masqueraded figures, mm-hmm. um, usually set against uh, you know hand painted hand painted backdrops of Australian landscapes. Um, and then this uh, series focusing on Ned Kelly doesn't necessarily focus on Ned Kelly himself, but on the um, the matrilineal line that surrounds Ned Kelly, mm-hmm. which often doesn't get talked about when we talk about this um, this folk legend. Um, can you talk a little bit about what drew you to, uh, I guess, the feminist perspective uh, of uh, the Kelly folklore? Sure. Um, well, I suppose I wanted to create, uh, like, to almost replace Kelly um, as this iconic figure with um, a female character, and I did that by creating a very large sculpture. And um, I was looking at um, some photographs of any females related to the Kelly gang, and I found this. Uh, very beautiful picture of Ellen Kelly, who's the mother of Ned Kelly, and she's um, um, riding um, a, a white horse and um, sitting side saddle on a white horse. And so I used that um, as as an image to start with. And I've instead exchanged um, Ellen Kelly, the mother, for another female character who is supposedly the lover of Ned Kelly. Um, and I, I chose to um, s- 
to depict her in three dimensions um, on a very large white horse, which is actually a replica of Farlap. And she's sitting um, on that horse and uh, there's there's no saddle, so um, there's no bridle, and she has no shoes, and she is pregnant, quite heavily pregnant, and she's holding um, a Martini Henry rifle, and she's wearing the helmet of Ned Kelly. And uh, can I ask why um, why do uh, I mean there's a there's a kind of national um, obsession that has existed for a long time around the Ned Kelly story, um, and you know everything from Sidney Nolan all the way through mm-hmm. to um, a kind of failed queering with uh, the true history of the Kelly gang. Mm-hmm. Um, why is it why is it important that um, that now we we understand the female perspective of that story. Okay, well, in in my exhibition um, in this series, it's it's it is the female. Um, there is there there is like the you know the heroine, the very sort of she's quite a, a powerful figure, although she may be you know quite vulnerable. But I'm I'm using the Kelly story as a way to bring people in to. Um, to think about perhaps the way that history is constructed, so it's it's not only the there's a lot of um, sort of fascinating female characters in this exhibition, but um, through my research, I also came across um, some really interesting um, Chinese histories. So I've depicted um, quite a few of the characters, uh, including. One, um, Ah Fook, who's uh, a man that Kelly apparently, like when he was 14 years old, Kelly assaulted. So um, you also get the the Chinese coming into this into this story when the Kelly gang was um, outlawed, and they and and a lot of the Chinese were hiding the Kelly gang. Um, the Chinese there was a Chinese detective looking for the Kelly gang. Um, so I, I was looking at that as well, and I've also brought in some indigenous history that I think is is majorly overlooked at that time. So I want to bring people into the into the show and um, and almost place them. In in that time um, and having them <clears throat> look at some other aspects that I was never told about it at school really um, even though I grew up there so you'll see um, that I've that there's that there's um, some photographic portraits alluding to the um, the native uh, mounted police uh, etc uh, yeah, I think the, um, the the narrative we get told around Australian history is very it's very white, it's very male, and it's very colonial. Um, and those other perspectives are you know, essential to um, maybe de- detoxicating the um, the national discourse uh, in this country. Um, can you you've, re- you've described the works a little bit, but can you describe in a little bit more detail for listeners what the works in the exhibition um, uh, look like in terms uh-huh. of their materiality? Sure. Yes, and I have to say also this is really the first time that I've made um, three like the sculptural work. I, I call them three D portraits. So um, it really happened as a lot of things do by mistake in a way or by um, like just forging ahead. So so sort of getting so obsessed with this idea of creating props. I was making props to to make a series of paintings actually and photographs and then I just kept making three-dimensional um portraits my so so life-size sculptures so um I I also took a a few trips to 
to Glen Rowan to the to the fantastic animatronic museum there, um, and hung out with with um, with the um, marvelous Bob who who created that. And I was looking at creating. I wanted people to walk in and to feel like um, like it's it set up like a museum. So to feel surrounded by these three dimensional figures. So I used a lot of um, mannequins and and um, sort of Halloween props, um, and then combined all of my own. Like I, I do own a lot of. Um, masks and costumes and so I, I was putting I was putting all of those together and it just grew it's like they started procreating um, <laughs> the first room you go into is is a very large uh, horse um, with a rider as I was describing before and the walls um, are surrounded with a few of my photographic portraits um, there's there's a um, uh, a fool's gold nugget horse poo underneath the horse <laughs> representing the um the, the way you know the, the sort of you know australia based on that you know that we've sort of you know needed this gold to attract a lot of migrants to the country but it's um it's also you know it's a little bit of a joke um and it's the same size as the welcome stranger gold nugget um and it's actually been molded on real horse poo i have to say from um northeast victoria it's got to be it's got to be authentic <laughs> it's all authentic it's so authentic i have to say because i used paper mache you know i used glue i used horsehair um I used wood and I didn't know what I was doing most of the time and I kept asking, um, you know, great artist friends of mine, how do you do this, how do you do this, how do you do this? Um, and so that's the first room and then in, in the there's this other room which um, I have, um, I actually myself love going into. Um, some people say it's scary. I really don't know what they're talking about but it's called the Outlaws Inn um, and that's based on this sort of one of this feel of like if you look at some of the films of Ned Kelly, like the siege of the, when the time that um, the, the cops were coming from the, the train and they and there was 63 hostages that were held up in this in the Ann Jones Inn. And so I've created this room. It's only it's got about 12 figures, but I also want it to feel like um, a wake or a, a reunion so it's like all these spirits or these characters have come back and they're there to join us and um and you can sit with them and they uh it it, it is this certain uh, um uh environment that i've created where people like the feedback from them is that one they they don't want to stay but they don't want to leave um and it's spooky, and there's actually a dance. I don't think it's spooky. It's a dance. There's a dancing figure. So there's animatronics, um, which I've you know learnt to do on you know finding out what you can buy on eBay, <laughs> and um, uh, like you know just some mo motorized um, things that I've found to make make some of the sculptures move. So there is that. It's very much like a, a wacky animatronics museum. Uh, you're listening to Triple R Smart Arts, and uh, my name's Daniel, and I am joined in the studio here by uh, with uh, Jackie Stockdale um, about her um, um, uh, her major new series of work that we that's um, being presented at Linden New Art Gallery. Um, it's the, uh, a history of the the Kelly Gang, but with a, um, a feminist um, perspective, looking at the um, the matrilineal. 
um, and the matriarchy components of that of that folklore. Um, Jackie was just describing the what you can experience when you walk into the gallery and what some of the works are. But um, Jackie, I'm curious to ask about um, the process of making the work. Can you walk us through what that you know physically what that what that's like in terms of making this work? Like, uh, do you have a do you have a studio or is it you know are you working from your from your lounge room with with these uh, with these objects and yeah you know how um, long what, how long does the process take? Can you walk us through that? Well, I'm working from my backyard. I'm working um, from yeah the whole house pretty much, and I I have. Um, uh, a big studio in Brunswick Street, Fitzroy. So the the large horse was living in the backyard for quite a while, and then I was working on that in the um, in the yeah in the back area because you couldn't fit it in the house. You had to take the head off, um, and so eventually I took the horse to the studio and put the head back on, and and started um, fixing it up. And um, it was initially a horse that I used for a series of mine where I was photographing models on very large real horses. So um, instead of taking the models to the stables, I would bring them to my house and I'd I'd have a look at see how they were how how it was. Um, going you know on on the horse the horse is really strong but I can actually carry it so it's strong but it's light so um so I was working on I brought I brought a lot I started with working working at home with a lot of the 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 figures and then I took them all to the studio and just you know was finishing them off over maybe six month period um, in the studio and just learning how to put things together uh, and buying things so um, I could cut them up lots of you know mainly secondhand um, mannequins as I was saying and um, also um, having some stands made and um, just really it's like they're like really big collages because it's the same sort of process and I'm like I, I need a hand so okay I get a saw and I cut off a hand oh a physical hand yeah, yeah a, a physical hand so <laughs> and and these characters that they're in the studio they re- they're really embodied that they really like all of them started growing I think it's like an author with 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 um you know writing characters into a story they um they like they have their own sort of vibe mm. and and I and I was dressing them it's like they're and, and putting hair on them and then you know painting their faces and then cutting the head off if I didn't like and putting another head on so it was very um, physical mm. and I thought you can see that in the work itself you know there is a, a sense of myth making in the work and there's a there is a there's a darkness there but it doesn't it doesn't it's not a forced darkness it kind of sits there in imbued in the way that the work is pulled together through collage like you said um the um, we're almost at uh, at time but you've um uh, you've got a you've got a song request uh-huh. um to, as our outro for the interview um it's Paul Kelly's Our Sunshine yes um why have you requested this song and what's its connection to the exhibition well <clears throat> there's a few connections our sunshine is a name given to Ned Kelly. Apparently, his mother called him Sunshine. Um, there's books called uh, about Ned Kelly called Sunshine, and um, Paul Kelly um, has made a song uh, many years ago called Our Sunshine, and Paul is features in this exhibition in a portrait called Kelly. <laughs> and you'll see um, I've depicted Paul in a series from 2016 as Paul, as Ned Kelly, the boxer, 
and he's holding um, the sash that was given to supposedly given to him when he saved a boy from drowning Um, so there's he features in this uh, I'm bringing back that that portrait because it it fits very nicely into the new story Uh, So we've been um, speaking to Jackie Stockdale about her new work, The Long Shot, um, a major series, uh, a major new series of work um, responding to the Kelly gang um, and the folklore surrounding that story um, with a feminist lens. It's playing at, uh, it's playing at, it's showing at uh, Linden New Art uh, in St Kilda uh, and it's running, it's already up, it's been running from the 22nd of February and will close on the 17th of May. Daniel, can I? just interrupt so on on the 17th there will be a showdown a live see it while you live because you'll be dead for a long time 45 minute performance uh that's wonderful who's in the performance so what how, you what have happens to come it? to see um all the works are taken down before your very eyes we've got bush gothic playing um and there's yeah quite a few great artists involved and lots of community members so that's on the 17th of May yeah. on the final day yeah. of the exhibition. That's two hours before the show is completely de-installed. Great. That sounds fantastic. Um, so here's our outro. It's um, Paul Kelly's Our Sunshine. And Jackie, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. The voice that you can hear is um, Daniel Santangeli. I'm stepping in for Richard Watts while he's uh, on holiday somewhere in the world. Uh, and uh, I'm joined in the studio by uh, NGV uh, curator and educator David Menzies. Welcome. Thank you, Daniel. Good to be here. And uh, joined by uh, artist and biomedicine student, <laughs> uh, Tasmia Islam. Welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. Uh, so the reason we're all gathered in the studio today is to talk about uh, NGV's um, uh, annual exhibition um, called Top Arts, uh, which is a showcase um, of the very best VCE arts and studio artworks from uh, the previous school year. So essentially it's a survey of works from across the country. Um, uh, David, I'm keen to kind of start with you. Um, Top Arts has been running for a very long time. Can you talk a little bit about what Top Arts is and the role that it plays in the kind of broader ecology of the arts? Yeah, sure, Daniel. Uh, Top Arts, um, as you say, has been around for a long, long while. We've had it together the last 26 years. Um, It comes under the auspices of the VCAA, the Victorian Curriculum and Assessment Authority's Season of Excellence, which is a real showcasing of brilliant work being done by students across the state of Victoria, those students studying in particular for Top Arts, VCE Art and VCE Studio Arts. Uh, and we as a gallery really want to honour, I suppose, um, the work that um, art education is being done across the state and also uh, really celebrate the achievements that students are uh, completing uh, in their art rooms and home studios, etc., amongst their families and friends. And so we uh, basically um, uh, you know, have been encouraging that the last 26 years. Uh, and this year uh, we've, uh, I think we've done a pretty good job this year in terms of selecting a range of works. And how that goes, if you want, if it's okay to talk about how we do go about the process. Is, yeah, how, yeah. Yeah. How many works do you receive? And so this year, last, late them? last year, we uh, basically got a, um, an, uh, got 1,713 applications. Uh, and we, as a team of four people, the selection panel made up of myself, uh, two VCA 
uh, state reviewers, one for art, one for studio arts, and also a VCAA person who looks after country students, sorry, country rep. Uh, we get to, we actually individually look at each work of art and say yes, maybe, no. And then with that sh- uh, sort of shortlist um, or that uh, list, we get together and we go through and we shortlist. Um, this time around we did 135 works of art who were then invited to bring their works of art and their folios to Coburg where we go through and then choose the works of art for the exhibition. Um, to get to the uh, selected stage for the exhibition, um, it requires a lot of balls being juggled basically in terms of getting a good cross-section of people from different school systems, the government, uh, Catholic and independent sector, uh, different range of works of art, different range across those two subjects and also uh, gender uh, and also regions as well too. So it's sort of juggling a few things and also, as I said, the mediums. We've got a, a, a range of mediums and it's great to have Tasmi here because she's a painter and is one of 15, uh, she's, her work one of 15 paintings in a collection of 46 works of art in the exhibition. Uh, so, I mean, Tasmia, that's a great segue to you and your work. So, um, you graduated from high school last year. Last year, yeah. And you went to the Suzanne Corey yeah, High School? Yeah, Suzanne Corey High School. Uh, which is in Werribee. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was it like to get selected for uh, for this exhibition? Um, it was incredible. Um, honestly, I could have never thought that I'd be here because um, for the last two years our teachers have always taken us to view the top arts exhibition and I just always thought they were so magnificent and um, for me I kind of made it like a little ambition for myself like one day I could potentially be there but um, obviously year 12's got many hurdles and you know they just kind of came in the way and slowly I started to lose hope but um, when the year ended, I submitted anyways and just hoped for the best. And, yep, that's what happened after. Yeah, this is, can I just cut in just here? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I love hearing Tasmia's story because one of the th- things that we're keen on is actually making sure it's accessible to everyone. You know, oftentimes people say to me, what's the secret? And for me, one of the key secrets is just being authentic in their approach or being passionate in the topic you've chosen to, you know, work on in your art or studio art subjects. And um, I think Tasmia's work of art is authentic. It's a, Thank you very It's a real much. love of um, nature and also a uh, love of painting comes through. So, you know... Um, if people are listening who are doing Art or Studio Arts this year, uh, choose something you are passionate about. Uh, choose something that's authentically, you know, resonates with yourself and your passions. Uh, so, I mean, Tasmi, I'm curious to ask you kind of touched on some of the, the challenges of high school mm. there. Um, yeah, can you talk a little bit? I mean, I, you know, it's been over, well over uh, a decade yeah. since <laughs> I was, went to school in Queensland. It was, you know, can you talk a little bit about what that year 12 experience is, is um, like? Yeah, many, many different things, like just things being thrown at you from all different directions. There's stuff going on, going on at home. There's all these other subjects going on at the same time. Um, I had also a dream to potentially become a doctor through undergrad medicine and that required a lot of you know extra thinking and hard work there were two other exams involved into getting selected for that um and also just you know maintaining friendships just like how most people would go through troubles with that um I had many issues not issues but um I did fall flat at times in studio arts because um it's like I'd felt like I'd reached a dead end. But my my teacher, Miss Tate, she was so lovely. She was always there for me, you know, 100% support and always helping me, like, find alternative routes to get where I wanted. Um, my plan, I was telling this to David earlier, um, it was to do two paintings, but then I had taken a risk and produced three in the end. It required that extra hard work, but I think it all paid off in the end, yeah. 
And can you, um, I mean, uh, for the listeners, can you describe your painting in terms of the materials that you used and what you've what you've captured in the work yeah. itself? So um, my painting is a small square painting. It's about um, 35 millimetres squ- centimetres squared. Um, it's called Holding Life and it's basically um, based on a picture that I took of my hand at Cunningham Pier near Geelong Beach and um, it's a hyper-realistic painting of my hand just you know um partially submerged in water um it's you know I initially painted it for the aesthetics but as I kept painting I realized water has so much to offer us like we literally depend on it and that's why I called it holding life because metaphorically it is the substance of life itself so yeah uh, and I think particularly in light of the environmental crisis as well, mm. I think it was hearing yesterday in the Senate estimates that um, if the temperature raise, rises uh, by two degrees, we'll lose 99.9% of our coral oh, reefs, wow. which is um, devastating. Um, the uh, Yeah, and so that, that focus on nature and drawing on that and um, remembering the value of it is, is so important at this time. Um uh, Tasmia, I'm I'm curious to ask you about your. I mean, you're about to start. You're studying biomedicine. Mm-hmm. Has the Has the semester started yet for you? No, um, Monash has actually been pushed back by two weeks, so we start on the 16th, I think. So you're about to step into bio, yeah, bio, bio biomedicine, <laughs> uh, yeah. which is huge um, and a huge undertaking. Um, but obviously, art plays a really valuable part in your in your life. Mm-hmm. How do you imagine art continuing in your in your life as you as you move forward? Um, believe it or not, I feel like it'll actually not change too much because I had picked studio arts in year 12 as like, um, relief from all my other subjects. I never treated it as work and I never treated it as like a massive chore or like a deadline that I've got to meet. I always, um, dedicated my weekends to art. Um, I always worked on it after finishing my other subjects and kind of treated it more as a hobby. So I feel like it'll continue to play a part as a hobby in my life like that, um, probably I'll get home late from uni some days but just as a form of relief I might I might paint like a little canvas or something yep yeah that's great and I feel like you know the art is something as a just an everyday part of our culture is something that um it feels like it's always reserved just for artists but actually totally essential that it's something that everyone takes up as yeah. part of their day as their part what, of their everyday life one of the things I've said Daniel to Tasmania while we're waiting um I did say to her keep painting her painting is beautiful and I'd hate someone like that to stop painting because it's, she obviously has a, a talent in in that field oh, thank you <laughs> Um, uh, David, I mean, I'm curious to ask about your experience of, you know, all of the artists that come through Top Arts. Um, I mean, what is their journey usually through the arts uh, after after Top Arts? Do many of them then continue to be practising artists? Yeah, it's a, a bit of a mix, Daniel. Um, I'd say probably around about the 30 to 40% do go on to fine art courses. Uh, and the rest do a whole range of things. Uh, some have gap years, some do biomedicine. Um, <laughs> other people do, I know last year we had nursing, we had architecture, uh, we had um, also arts as well too. So there's a whole range of uh, different pe- paths that people take. Uh, all people, it's interesting, one of the questions we ask that, uh, people who are shortlisted is, you know, what 
parts do you think arts will play going into the future in your life? And uh, as Tasmia said, it, you know, even though they might not be taking on a course that's art specific, uh, they want to keep dabbling because they, they they know, having gone through, I suppose, their secondary years with an art classes, uh, that they they know how important and how um, how life giving you know art can be, art making can be. Uh, and David, um, you know, looking at the survey of the works that are in top arts at NGV Australia. Um, what does what that, you know, what does that collection of works um, tell you about what's important to young people in Victoria yeah. in yeah. 2020? That's, that's a great question. One of the, one of the things I did, um, and with the designer too, uh, Todd and Nguyen, I we sat down at the beginning of January and we had small pictures of the 46 different works and thought, okay, what's this, what, you know, how can we collect these and make the journey through the gallery, the three spaces roughly, uh, meaningful and and also a bit more coherent. So the three key themes we came up with, the first one was perception, so seeing the world as it is, you know, being able to to make sense of it. So you see a range of artists looking at the, the city, uh, the body, um, you know, actually perception itself, how do we view things, you know, being critical and how do we make sense of things, uh, et cetera. So that's one of, the key, one of the key elements that came through this year. The second one, and I think one of the strongest ones too, and it's always on the go too, is um, identity, people looking at, you know, the whole thing of identity through race or sexuality uh, or gender as well too so that's one of the big ones that keeps coming through and I have to say too um, just as a point uh, that basically one of the things I love about this um, subject or these two subjects is that people can actually be honest and, and interrogate, investigate, uh, ruminate, reflect about themselves and the people around them as well too. And, and it's, it's such a, so refreshing to see honesty. And as I said before, authenticity as well too. And, uh, you know, I had a couple of boys in the exhibition who talk about, you know, basically being out and gay, uh, being able to, you know, interrogate what that means in the 21st century, which I reckon is uh, brilliant. It's, it's incredible, you know, change from 30, 40 years ago. Um, and the in the third space we look at is also the, the space I call simpatico, which is that Latin derivative word, which talks about an incredible link between yourself and something else or someone else as well. So it's hard to put into English, but there's an incredible link between the two, and um, and, and that's where Tesmia's work falls into that category in the, in the in the last room, basically looking at whole thing of environment, um, looking at beauty of the world, um, looking at also indigenous issues as well too. So that deep um, relationship or I suppose sensitivity or sympathy, there's no other English word that can really encapsulate sympathic or so. Um, and other things too that comes through, which I, I've seen the last probably three or four years more, more so than before, is mental health. And it's quite a significant issue. Obviously, we, we, we're seeing more and more research, more and more findings, etc. But students are really talking about it much more than ever be, ever before as well. And that's really healthy, uh, be it uh, of family members or themselves as well too. So there are a couple of the key issues that come through. Uh, and Tasmia, um, I mean, the one of the things about being in school is that sometimes schools can be, uh, you know, by the very by necessity, they're quite rigid places um, because you've got to get to class on time, yeah. you've got to, you know, behave in particular ways. Um, but um, can you talk a little bit about your um, about art art classes at school and what that kind of what what that allows you to do and how that's different to the rest of the school experience and how that allows you to explore, I guess, your identity or what's important to you? Yeah, sure. Um, So our school, it's actually divided into four wings and the whole art area is called the T-Wing for technology. And um, I remember my friends always joking, oh, Tasmia, you literally live in the T-Wing. And I did because honestly, it was such an, it was so different to the rest of the school. It's such an open space. And there's no toxic environment whatsoever it's like everybody supporting each other's different art forms and 
there was just such a range of beautiful works um, that were that was exhibited in the in the tea wing and um, I just loved being in that positive environment. Um, my friends would often come visit me while I was staying in um, after school or during recess and lunch and they'd, they'd um, watch me paint and they'd see what I'm working on. My teacher was always there. Um, as I've mentioned before, she was my biggest supporter and um, we were always her first priority. So I honestly did love being in the art section at school and um yeah, we had some year 11 students as well who were lovely. And um, I really I really admired how they tried really hard to understand what we as year 12s were going through. So we had a great bond like that, yeah. Yeah, great. And a big shout out to all the art teachers out there who um, <laughs> have provided many um, inspiration and um, uh, places of safety for so many students uh, across the years and who worked tirelessly hard. Um, uh, Tasmia Islam, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. And David, thank you for your time. Thank you. Well. Just a bit, of a, a bit of an ad in terms of yes, the absolutely. Top, top Arts kicks off on, uh, well, the opening's on Wednesday night. There's a teen or art after hours on Thursday night, 5.30 to 8 o'clock. Anyone who's a teenager, uh, an exhibiting artist, family, friends, they're more than welcome to come along. And the exhibition opens up formally on Friday, the 13th of March and goes through the 12th of July. Uh, and uh, where can you find out more online for it? Absolutely. Go to the Top Arts, NGV Top Arts Hub. There's heaps of information about artists uh, exhibiting this year and also the last 20 years as well. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's Smart Arts, a weekly radio show bringing news, reviews and interviews about the art, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Thursday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. 